you are listening to Seattle Growth Podcast and Radio Show. You are listening to Seattle Growth Podcast and Radio Show. That's the voice of today's guest, Tekla Waterfield. I'm Jeff Shulman, a professor at the University of Washington's Foster School of Business. And this season of Seattle Growth Podcast and Radio Show is bringing you diverse perspectives on whether the city will continue to be a desirable place to live, to work, and to do business. With Seattle in the national spotlight, it can be difficult to get a sense of where Seattle is and where it is going. I'm bringing you an unbiased exploration of what our future holds and how people are navigating the pandemic to bring the future they would like to see. Last week, you heard from Central District entrepreneur and community advocate Jess Darnell Henton. The notion that if we take away our police, that somehow is doing a, a, a doing a service to our neighborhood, and it's not. It is not. You also heard from the president and CEO of the Downtown Seattle Association, John Scholes. 130 brick and mortar locations. Uh, close their doors permanently, uh, and and that's just devastating. And, and those are those are spaces and vacancies that are not going to just pop back open. In this episode, you will hear from Husky Football Hall of Famer Greg Lewis, who is the executive director of the Meredith Matthews East Madison YMCA. There's a great divide in the outcomes that people are experiencing from COVID-19. So we've really taken and put our stake in the ground to focus on health equity uh, in communities of color, BIPOC communities, low-income communities. You'll also hear from musician Tekla Waterfield. I feel like 2020 is the year of the pivot. (laughs) It really is. Um, Because you kind of have to figure out what you can do with what you have and who you are and how safe and comfortable you feel. I was able to conduct safe, socially distanced interviews thanks to the kind folks at KBFG Radio. Combined, these interviews give you distinct perspectives on how people are navigating the pandemic and what the future holds for Seattle. It is also a chance to meet people who make Seattle the city that it is. So now to meet one of these special people, join me as I have a conversation with Greg Lewis. I am here at the Meredith Matthews East Madison YMCA with the executive director of this branch, Greg Lewis. He is also a Husky Hall of Famer from his running back days with the University of Washington. Greg, thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate being here. You know, it's a great time to be in Seattle. It's transforming from uh, summer to fall. So just love being in Seattle this time of year. Yeah, and we're catching it right now as we got some sunshine and rain at the exact same time. Um, you've been on the podcast before, but just tell me a little bit about yourself in case somebody missed that episode. Um, well, I've been here at the Meredith Matthews East Madison YMCA for uh, going on four years now. Uh, an opportunity to come back to the community uh, that I grew up in and uh, a place that has been a part, big part of my life and served the, the, the folks in Seattle. Uh, that need a place like the YMCA. The YMCA is definitely a huge part of every community that we exist in, doing a lot of things. We're not just the gym, you know, where people work out at, but we're actually a place that does a lot of social services, a lot of social impact sort of things. Uh, So it's really good to be here, to be a part of this community. You were really gearing up doing a lot of events just before the pandemic, helping to connect the legacy of the Central District with all the new people moving in here. Mm Tell me how you've adapted, how you've been coping with the pandemic. Well, I think the pandemic actually gave us a chance to really hone in on some very specific things. What we've seen 
uh, with COVID-19 is that health disparities uh, between people who are wealthy and maybe have access to great health care uh, has increased the, the divide uh, between them and folks who maybe don't have health insurance or are not well off or you know who economically are challenged. Um, there's a great divide in the outcomes that people are experiencing from COVID-19. So we've really taken and put our stake in the ground to focus on health equity uh, in communities of color, BIPOC communities, low-income communities. And right now we've uh, gotten some grants to go out and do a lot of research, collect a lot of data, um, and then we're, we're going to create a health equity core where kids who are, and, and young adults who are uh, interested in healthcare um, and, and maybe getting their masters in, uh, in social work and that sort of things uh, can actually create some solutions to these huge problems that we have with immigrant communities who don't know how to navigate our healthcare system, things like that. So this has really given us sort of a uh, opportunity to really hone in on some, some work that's really needed in our communities. While you've had an opportunity to hone in on an impactful initiative, how has COVID-19 and the pandemic affected your ability to stay afloat? You know, uh, the revenue, I'd imagine, is... Yes, <laughs> that's been interesting. Although we do a lot of great uh, work in the communities, most of what we do is supported by our membership. Folks who pay to come work out at our facilities or to have family programming, learn how to swim, that kind of thing. And since the pandemic, we were shut down for a long period of time. And now we're just open in a limited capacity. So our membership at, say... My branch in particular went from just under 3,800 to now we're about 2,300. So we've lost a lot of revenue. The associations lost a lot of revenue. Uh, in our most recent report, I think we were uh, down about 1.3 million just this month alone. Uh, so it makes that work a little harder. But we, what we have done is we've called on our community to support the work that we're doing. Um, and our community has been generous. They've been kind. They've been supportive of the work. And they've stepped up. And they've allowed us to continue to do work like focusing on health disparities by contributing funds. And we also have gone out and gotten some grants uh, from uh, the state and local levels and from the YMCA of the United States of America. They've given us some grants. So we've been able to do this work just with the kind, generous support of folks who you know, live in this community and want to see that as something that uh, uh, there's an impact made. Speaking of seeking grants and the generosity of people, I'm curious, what has been the best aspect of either living or working in the city during the pandemic? You know, that's a that's a tough question, I think, from the standpoint that I think we're all impacted, whether we're in the city or we're in the suburbs or out in the country. Uh, I myself um, have found that still having some sort of human connection and activity and, you know, just um, seeing people and things happening has been, you know, good for me. I'm more of a people person and like activity. Uh, so the isolation has been tough for me, um, being at home for long periods of time, only working three days a week, which I am right now because um, we don't have enough operational support to be open, you know, every day of the week. Uh, but I think just because we're in a city like Seattle, where if you see their cars still driving down the street, there's still activity, people walking around. I think it's been helpful just to have that human interaction and that activity going on. And what aspects of Seattle has made coping or surviving in this pandemic more challenging? COVID-19 has been such a huge challenge, I think, worldwide uh, that I can't maybe specifically highlight a lot of things that it's made it more difficult being in Seattle. But 
what I can say is I went to Port St. Joe, Florida, uh, in the midst of all of this, where my mom lives. And to give you a pro and a con there, um, the disease was spreading like wildfire in a small rural community where, um, you know, people aren't that well off. Um, you saw a lot of people coming down with it, being hospitalized and the hospitals were overrun uh, because of their size. So being in a place like Seattle, where we're a little more spread out, where, um, you know, people have a little more health care, I guess that would be a benefit to answer your first question. I think um, some of the challenges uh, may, now that we're getting to a place where a lot of people have decided to get more engaged back in regular activity you know some of the same old things with all the traffic and you know um you go into a grocery store and you're trying to stay safe and protected but there's you know 80 90 people walking through the same aisles and you know some people don't you know respect the mask thing they they um you know want their own individual freedoms as they call it so you know you get that 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 diverse of thought in Seattle. And so everybody's not necessarily on the same page. Uh, you know, people have their different values and different views on this thing. So uh, I think that has made it a little tougher. And I think um, COVID-19 has made us politicize a, a virus. And now it really, you know, causes a lot of friction from time to time when you're just having regular conversation and maybe even talking about, oh, I need to find my mask. And then people will challenge you. Well, why are you wearing a mask? You know, that's stupid. And, you know, the governor's, you know, making you wear a mask. So I think uh, in a place like Seattle has gotten so politicized that it, it's, it's caused friction even amongst friends and family. I want to switch gears uh, away from COVID-19 into Seattle in general, where mm -hmm. Uh, in addition to dealing with the pandemic, there's just a lot of changes underway. Mm -hmm. And curious, uh, both positive and negative, I'll start with positive. What changes in the last few months since I've talked to you last are most impactful on you personally? You know, there's a historical context of people in the black community, especially not really being together at this point, you know, being fractured and moved out and no one, you know, kind of really rallying for the same cause. And I think a lot of the things that have gone on uh, in the last half a year in the United States has sort of brought us together. It's gotten people sort of thinking about how can we improve our situation? How can we um, use uh, a time such as this uh, as an opportunity to impact the outcomes for our children and our grandchildren? You know, folks my age, you know, we've lived our lives and We've um, gone through what we've gone through, but we want to see something better for our kids and we want to see something better for our grandkids. And I think um, it's sort of mobilized a lot of that thought and that effort and that energy. And people are coming together, really trying to come up with solid solutions on how folks that, you know, are on the outside or on the periphery um, can, you know, be energized to get in, be part of the mainstream and, you know, achieve their American dream just like everybody else. And can you give some background on uh, some of the issues? Absolutely. I think, um, you know, most times when you think about a better future, you think about the educational system. And I think in Seattle, um, there's been a huge disparity uh, when you look at schools that are in the north end or out in the suburbs, as opposed to that are those that are in the inner city. You know, um, I went to Ingram High School during the busing. If you look at Ingram and Ballard and Roosevelt and you compare them to a Rainier Beach uh, or, or, or a Franklin, and think about what sort of resources the kids have, what sort of uh, tenure the, the teachers have, and wh even what uh, communities those teachers come from. Um, there's a lot of disparities there. And so I think our efforts have organized around, we want fair, equitable, 
um, well-funded schools in the inner cities of Seattle, just like they may have out in the periphery in the suburbs or on the north end of town. Um, so I think that's one big thing. I also think that economically there's been a refocus on how um, we as a community uh, can force change and bring an impact towards closing that economic disparity gap. There are certain parts of Seattle, you look through um, the Rainier Valley, South End, where the average income and means of income, especially in BIPOC communities, Black, Indigenous, and people of color, um, communities have a lot lower income. And there's been a focus around that. How do we change that? How do we come together and start our own businesses? How do we support um, the Black community in particular when businesses come up? You know, do we uh, as they call it, uh, recycle the black dollar, spend our money in black businesses and in the black community. Uh, I think there's been a renewed, a revitalized energy around that. And there's even been talk about boycotting, you know, some mainstream um, companies or, 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 or infrastructure so that they realize that we are a viable uh, force when it comes to economics in the United States of America. We spend as uh, black people in the United States of America. So um, those dollars should matter and we should be able to uh, have some some voice when it comes to economic uh, development in the United States. And in, in a big city like Seattle, um, where there's a lot of money, you know, with the Microsofts and, and, and a lot of the tech companies, how do we leverage those resources to impact our community? Can you just give some background in terms of the Meredith Matthews East Madison YMCA in particular or the Central District? Mm -hmm. Well, I, from, from my context and my historical view, if you think about the Central District um, 35 years ago, um, where it was predominantly black, it, uh, the businesses throughout the Central District corridor, there were lots of black businesses throughout that corridor. Um, and there was a time where um, they were thriving, but then as the 80s and 90s and rolling into the 2000s, um, with divestment in this community, banks not you know lending money in this community, um, individuals that were uh, black or people of color having to move out because of higher uh, property taxes and things like that, um, the businesses didn't have the customer that they would normally have living in that community to support the restaurants, supporting the boutique shops, uh, supporting the small business. So a lot of those businesses closed down. A lot of those businesses weren't able to sustain themselves. And so there's a renewed interest and a revitalized interest in even though the black community physically isn't necessarily still here in the Central District in abundance that it used to be, that a lot of the black institutions are still here, there are still some businesses. How do we support them? How do we make sure that they can thrive? And then um, the black community, the diaspora, uh, if you were to just look at the, the, the economic uh, salaries and income of black people in the city of Seattle, it's going to be a lot lower than white folks in the city of Seattle. So how do we support them? How do we support um, getting our kids into STEM programs in school so that they can work at a Microsoft and they can raise their level of income? So it's tied to the educational part as well. And then one of the things that I found surprising when I first heard it through the podcast and then in making the documentary on the brink is that the central district itself was the only place in Seattle that black individuals were able to live due mm -hmm. to racial covenants. Yeah. And then could you talk a little bit about Meredith Matthews, East Madison, YMCA, the yeah. history there? So, yeah, if you go back into, you know, the early 1900s with the restrictive covenants and the redlining and um, really centralizing black home ownership and where folks could live in the central district, it created, you know, um, a, a, a real 
uh, I don't know, renaissance of black business and history and culture and art and all of that. Um, and just like anything else, there are social programs and uh, social services that are needed in any community. And the YMCA of Greater Seattle didn't have a a representation or any sort of services that they were offering the black community at the time that the Meredith Matthews was established back in 1936. And so they really were trying to figure out how do we support you know, people of color in the city of Seattle. And they said that they were thinking about, we're gonna either support, and this is the vernacular back in the thirties, the Oriental community or the um, Negro community. And we one, but not both, cause we can't afford to do it. And because of uh, World War II and Japanese internment and the influx of African-Americans moving to the North to work at Boeing and in the military complex, um, the black community was growing. The central district was thriving. So they decided to establish a YMCA here in the central district. And that's the East Madison branch at that time uh, kind of came out of, and it was really primarily serving, you know, guys coming back from the military or getting ready to go and, you know, social services, things like that. Um, it evolved into after the war, a place where families and uh, kids could, um, you know, really have a social center. They could also have social services. Um, they could also have educational enhancement and enrichment opportunities, things that the schools maybe did. And it started to thrive as a social scene, um, particularly around music. Uh, guys like Quincy Jones and, and Ray Charles and Ernestine Anderson have all played here. Matter of fact, um, most people tell you they got their start here. And this is where they really first got paid to play music and all those kinds of things. So it started to thrive. It became Meredith Matthews in the 90s after um, the gentleman Meredith, Meredith Matthews became the executive director here in the 50s, brought a lot of family programs and youth and development programs to the Central District. And it just became a fabric and a part of the community, part of the economic structure, a part of uh, serving kids and youth and families uh, and has evolved to what it is today. So we've talked about the positives mm -hmm. associated with the recent changes here in Seattle. Are there any recent changes that have impacted you personally or professionally negatively? Well, I think um, economically, a lot of us have suffered personally. I mean, personally now, I'm furloughed two days a week. So I work three days a week. I make three-fifths of you know what salary I would normally make. I've had to lay off 60-plus people. Uh, those are families. Those aren't just statistics or numbers. Those are people who have husbands, wives, children. I've had to lay folks off. Uh, and so they're being impact. Um, friendships, you know, relationships have been, you know, severed because of not being able to see folks every day. Um, there's been a lot of isolation, just like everywhere else. You know, I, I like being around people. I like being useful. I like being at work all the time. So that's impacted me personally. Um, but I've also seen just like the rest of America, some of the, the things that are going on, whether it's, um, you know, COVID-19 and this disparities that I talked about earlier or a lot of the protests around police brutality, it's driven that divisiveness in America deep and wide. And that happens here in the Central District. I've come to work sometimes and there's graffiti painted on our building. You know, one side will say Black Lives Matter and then the next day it'll be crossed out with arrows. So there's that, that divisiveness and, you know, I've had people come to the branch, even though we're limited in our capacity to open right now, we are open, but we require folks to wear masks. I've had people get extremely upset with me because they don't want to wear their masks. So, you know, that divisiveness and that counter, you know, protest and that, you know, this side and that side, 
and you know the politics and all of that has affected us here at Meredith Matthews and me personally in my life just like everybody else. Based off of that, is there any message you'd like to share with the listener, a request of mm -hmm. the people of Seattle? Absolutely. Um, we found many ways to separate ourselves. We found all kinds of ways to express our differences. We found, you know, many, many opportunities to tell someone else what they should think or what they should believe. It's time for us to start figuring out ways to come together. How can we change for everybody so that everybody has the same opportunities that everyone else has? How can we focus on our similarities instead of so much on our differences? I think that um, at this point, we, we get it. <laughs> we get it. America has not necessarily lived up to its creed um, that all men are created equally, uh, that they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So now what can we do to change that? And how can we all do it together? Um, I've been fortunate to work at a place like Meredith Matthews, um, where I see that happening in a lot of ways. I'll give you an example. Um, I have a donor who... Um, gives frequently to the YMCA to support programming. And, you know, she came to me a little while ago and said, I want to really make a difference in this community and figure out how we can help, you know, folks that need that helping hand and, and not so much so just because they're economically disadvantaged, but because of all the issues that are going on with COVID and, and, and divisiveness. And she's a Caucasian. And what she decided to do was make a large substantial gift that's going to create a virtual learning center so that moms who are working or dads who are working who can't afford to send their kids somewhere all day long, you know, not just before and after school because schools are closed, um, could actually have a place where they can drop their kids off. They'll have tutors. They'll have, you know, folks that are there, you know, working with the kids so that they can do their homework, do their schoolwork online with the computers and all of that. And she made that happen. And that's the an example to me. And, and we were asking her, would she want to name that after her family because she was given the gift on behalf of her mom and dad. She's like, no, let's name it Brianna Taylor or something like that. And we were like, no, we want to show two cultures coming together to create something that really is impacting for the good. And that's what we need to be trying to do right now. We're going to talk a little bit about your outlook for the city of Seattle. What do you mm -hmm. expect in the future? One innovation this year in Seattle Growth Podcast is doing trivia. So interjecting with uh, some questions. And if you would like, you could ask me trivia because I learned when a guest did that how it feels to be put on the spot. <laughs> but uh, trivia this time is how many Rose Bowls has the University of Washington Husky football team won? Eight. I will tell you the answer in a moment. we got to keep the listener in suspense <laughs> uh, and you in suspense here. University of Washington Husky football team, uh, quite a few Rose Bowls. We'll come back in a moment with whether it's eight or more or less. And now you're now welcome if you'd like to put me on the spot. Any trivia about Meredith Matthews, East Madison YMCA, or about the Central District? I'm going to ask one because I gave you the answer a little earlier just to see what your listening and memory skills are oh, like. Oh, boy. Okay. What year was the Meredith Matthews East Madison YMCA, or at the time the East Madison YMCA, established? Oh, wow. So now that's cruel because it's, well, I guess, yeah, that that's cruel because <laughs> it's checking my listening comprehension. I... Numbers don't stick in my head very well. I'm going to say 1930s is what you said. It was in the 30s, but I gave okay. you a specific okay. year, so just throw one out. Okay, I'm going to say 1936. 
Exactly. You got it right. Uh, all right. 1936. Or 30. Some people say 37, but 36, I think, is the official. Okay. Yeah. It's subconsciously <laughs> seeped in into there. my brain. Yeah. Um, all right. So we'll get to your answer in a moment. And But first, Outlook for Seattle. We've been growing for the last 10 years uh, at a rapid pace, r- unprecedented pace. What do you expect for the next six months, next year, what, the road ahead? What do you expect for Seattle? Um, you know, Seattle is a world-class city. Seattle has so many advantages um, and positive outlook for growth economically and all of those factors. So I don't suspect that that part of it will change anytime soon. Um, I do believe that um, as a person of color and working in this community, in this neighborhood, the outlook for um, our success, um, and, and I'll say our because you know I'm a black person, um, is a little more tedious. And I think we got to continue to push and struggle and fight for educa- educational um, um, equality and making sure that our schools are doing a good job educating our kids, holding Seattle School District's feet to the fire. Um, and if we can accomplish that, and then we can um, create a, um, a, a base of high achieving young people who are going to go out and compete in this temp, the STEM world and the tech world and all of that, we have an opportunity to have success. And because it's such a great city and there's so many resources, I don't see why that couldn't happen. So I'm going to say the outlook can be positive and, and it's really up to us to continue to hold this city accountable. Okay. So I have to give you the answer to the trivia yeah. question. You were close with eight, uh, seven from what I can okay. say. Um, and you won one of them, right? Uh, <laughs> I won one of them in 1991, the 1991 Rose Bowl after the 1990 season. I knew there were two there, Warren Moon's era, two, and then I figured at least four previous because I know there was like three or four years of undefeated Husky football, so I was one off. Yeah, very good, though, yeah. and, and seven is remarkable. Yeah. I'm proud of the University of Washington. Any concluding thoughts? Well, I guess I'm just like everyone else looking forward to creating our new normal. You know, I read a quote the other day. Uh, that was referencing someone saying they'll be glad when COVID's over and everything goes back to normal. And the quote indicated that what we had before this wasn't normal. It was just something that we had normalized. We had normalized inequalities, normalized uh, unjust. We had normalized, you know, greed. We had normalized a lot of these things. But this is an opportunity for us to weave a new tapestry and to create that vision that, you know, supposedly our forefathers really foresaw where everybody could be involved and engage uh, in success and achieving their dreams and goals for their family. And like I said, for me, it's all about my kids and my grandkids. So my closing thoughts just around, you know, we all we have an opportunity. We have an opportunity uh, at this point in time uh, to create what normal really is for us. And hopefully that that'll be a brighter future for everybody. Greg, thank you very much for joining me today. I appreciate your time and perspective. Thank you. Next up is an interview with Seattle musician Tekla Waterfield. Before we get to the interview, I want to hear from you. I'm connecting with interview guests from a diverse set of backgrounds in an effort to bring you an unbiased, unfiltered view of Seattle's past, present, and future. Reach out to me on Twitter, at Prof Shulman, to let me know who you want to hear from next. That's at Prof Shulman on Twitter. I'd love to hear what interviews have resonated with you and who else should be on Seattle Growth Podcast and Radio Show. Now, to hear a perspective from a full-time musician, join me in a conversation with Tecla Waterfield. 
I am here in Beacon Hill with noted Seattle musician Tekla Waterfield, who appeared on season four of Seattle Growth Podcast, looking at the past, present, and future of Seattle music scene. And Tekla, it's wonderful to have you again. Thank you for joining me today. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So why don't you start by telling me a little bit about yourself? Okay. Yeah, I've been uh, a working musician um, for a few years, um, and and what that means is um, kind of just gigging uh, around town, um, playing at wineries, breweries, um, of course, playing with a band at a, at a venue and um, trying to tour whenever possible, um, and um, have been making a living doing that. Um, my husband is also a full-time working musician, um, and he's, uh, he's been a side man for um, Mark Lanigan for the last like eight, nine years, and they toured Europe and all that. So, so yeah, we're in a house of music. We have a, a studio in our basement where we, we are lucky enough to get to do some recording. And um, yeah, it's, I do a little bit of teaching, a little bit of kind of gig work where I just sort of pick up uh, work here and there and just kind of make it work because we are both just very dedicated to being um, to being artists and to being creators. So, And this pandemic has been difficult for pretty much everybody. But musicians from the outside, it seems like this is a particularly tough time, you know, with the venues closed down and just all the challenges that come with that. Can you tell us a little bit about how you're coping with pandemic, either professionally, personally or both? It was, you know, sort of a lot at first where, you know, it was like everything was canceled and um, it's kind of like. A scramble like okay what do we do I feel like 2020 is the year of the pivot <laughs> it really is um, because you kind of have to figure out what you can do w- with what you have and who you are and how safe and comfortable you feel taking on different work so it, it was a little crazy at first and actually at first we were offered a whole bunch of virtual gigs um, and we were busy we were doing sending in videos that were played at, for the employees at SeaTac Airport, because that was one of my usual gigs, and they continued to pay me for all of those ongoing gigs. And um, we did uh, we did some live stream concerts where you know there's a virtual tip jar, and and people you know show up and throw in some money. And then we we um, we did other things like where we just made um, videos and did a, an event around that and released them and. Um, kind of just continuing to find ways to perform all all virtually but to connect with people um in in a different way um jeff's been getting busier um on on a production side and also making more videos um which he had to kind of figure out how to do is um uh, you know <laughs> uh figure out that side of things like so putting together audio and video to, and he's gotten better and better at it. He's like, now I feel like I'm also a video guy. It's weird, you know, but in terms of like pivoting to finding new ways to work and he's doing some session work, um, and some recording stuff. So he's been, he's been keeping pretty busy. Um, I've done a little bit of teaching. We both got PPP loans since we both were considered small business. Um, and that really saved us for, um, a good, you know, like we're okay. Like we're not like, desperate destitute you know we can make that stretch um yeah so you know that's kind of where we're at uh it, we're we're just sort of feeling like okay in terms of live music um we've done a very small amount of very intimate little house 
kind of concerts with a very small audience, like 10, 15 people all far apart. But that's, and now it's winter. So it's like, that's not really happening now that we're, we can't really be out outside. So yeah, it's hard to know like what the next year will look like because, you know, and the music industry or the music venues are all really struggling. There's a lot of, um, uh, a lot of folks advocating around that, like trying to raise enough money to keep the venues from having to just completely go under because they got the PPPs, but they're that it's not sustainable long term, you know, to to keep that going. You know, they have to have some revenue. So it's I try not to think too hard about that because I I don't know I have to have hope and faith that you know things will work out. In normal world before the pandemic, you know, how much of your income as a musician is from activities that you can no longer do well especially at first it was everything that i do because i was living completely on gigging um and then i would occasionally do a teleprompting which is you go to video shoots and you set up the gear and you type while the people are you know the people who need to speak they follow the script that's one of my sort of odd job kind of gigs that i do um and that got canceled right away um because we couldn't be in groups at all and then the other thing i do is catering occasionally which is like another just kind of you can pick up work and make money and um you know that way i can keep doing this have the flexibility to to live a creative uh, life and those all got canceled so it was everything so how long did it take you to realize all right i have to pivot mm-hmm. if i'm going to survive for me it was right away I, w- I didn't sit on it at all i just immediately was like okay let's make videos i applied for a bunch of grants and got like quite a few grants and so right away i was just like okay how do we fix this it was a little different for my husband because he had um a huge year of touring set up and i mean it's like hard to replace that and the income that he makes from that was like the bulk of our combined income those tours um versus my little gigs are just like a little bit little bit little bit but those tours that was like we couldn't really replace his that that income doing all of these um really honestly these virtual concerts versus playing in a venue um we made more money actually doing these um these uh virtual concerts where we put up a tip jar and then people can tip um a lot more than what we made at, at venues because at a venue you actually are you're paying the sound person you're paying you know basically like a room fee um and you only get a, a kind of a really small percentage of all that as as musicians so instead it was like all for us so it was like kind of like whoa you know um so in that sense it was we could kind of immediately even out a little bit but um Luckily, you know, my husband has built up enough connections and contacts and a reputation over the years that, you know, gradually, you know, he started to get people kind of saying, hey, you know, I need help with this or help with that. So he he's been making music videos for um, Nancy Wilson of Heart the Blonde. (laughs) I always forget which one's Anna, which one's Nancy. Uh, but he's been making videos for her where she sends in um, a audio of her singing into like a mic on her cell phone. And then the other band guys send in their parts. And he played on a, a little, a couple of them, but then she just liked the way he was making these videos so much that he's now kind of her video guy. So even if he doesn't play on the song, he gets that gig that's like, you know, that pays pretty well. So, you know, we're kind of, we're lucky that we have 
connections and skills and, and services that people want that we were able to kind of turn it around in, in another way. It's Honestly, it, it's the boredom of, <laughs> you know, because normally we'd go out and we'd, we'd engage with the community and we'd, um, we'd go to see other friends' shows and we'd, um, you know, not be stuck in a house, um, just the two of us, like, for a long time. I mean, normally he'd be on the road and, you know, it was just, it's just a total uh, change of life. But the other good thing is we, we were able to go to Dobe on Orcas as um, part of their uh, summer Dobe Music Festival Artist Retreat Residency Program. Um, and I had written a whole bunch of songs right at the beginning of the pandemic, just and, and we had gone to protest. And, you know, so I wrote a lot of stuff inspired by all those events. And I was like, you know, while we're out there, let's just let's just record some music like let's just so we set up guitar um, and vocal mic and Jeff luckily has the ability to do that and we captured just the basics of a whole new album we wound up um, recording a full album and then finishing it this summer and now we're we're getting ready to start trickling out singles and then do a full album release in January so that was like something we wouldn't have been able to he would have been gone you know um, a lot so in a way it was like the things that we did to shift were were good you know and yeah. so you have a new album coming out in January. Yeah. And if people want to hear your music, how can they do that? They can they can uh, check it out on Spotify, Bandcamp. It'll be on iTunes, Amazon, all that stuff. Under um, this album is actually the first one that'll be under both of our names, Tecla Waterfield and Jeff Fielder. Yeah. And so I want to switch gears a little bit uh, to Seattle now. Going through this difficult time of a pandemic, what aspects of Seattle have made that better? than yeah. it could otherwise be. Definitely. Yeah. The first thing that comes to mind is that we're in King County, so we were eligible for all these, um, you know, sort of local-based grants, whereas I heard some people say, oh, I applied for all these things, or I tried to, but because I'm not in in King County, I wasn't eligible. So we were thankful for that. And what about negative? Anything about being in Seattle during the pandemic has made going through a pandemic harder? Well, I mean, it's expensive here. So, you know, that's... We, we considered, we're like, do we need to just jump ship and go somewhere? And, and it's and it's crowded. So if you're thinking about, oh, do we need to get away from people right now? You know, um, it that's, but we live on, as you, as you are here right now, you can see we live a little away from the crowd. So we, we're able to, um, fortunately, you know, kind of isolate a little bit easier versus I have friends that live in Capitol Hill. I mean, on top of all the protests and all this chaos that was going on there, they can't like go outside without wearing a, a mask, like, you know, even just to go to the mailbox or something. Whereas here we have a little more space around us. So we, you know, it doesn't feel quite as like trapped. Now I want to switch to just changes in general in Seattle. But before I do, new this year on Seattle Growth Podcast is trivia. So I'm trying to keep the listeners engaged with trivia questions and just testing your Seattle knowledge. Um, no pressure, but Marco Collins was a guest on season four when we talked about the past, present, and future of Seattle music, which you appeared in. He has an exhibit in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame about him because of his work as a DJ or a radio personality for what radio station? Well, he works at KXP. What put him on the map back in the 90s in the grunge era? Oh, man, I, I have no idea. <laughs> Venture a guess? 
I mean, I honestly, all I listen to is KXP and KBCS. I don't even know what any of the other radio stations are in, in the area. 107 something? Okay. The end or something? Okay. So you're going with 107 something, <laughs> the end maybe. We're going to keep you and the listener in suspense until okay. later. In, but thank you for venturing a guess. Um, and so now I want to talk about the changes in Seattle. You know, when I interviewed you last, Seattle was booming and it seemed like there was a never ending amount of money and people that wanted to move into the city. Mm -hmm. These last nine months uh, seem to be Seattle's in another transition. Can you talk about the changes that have impacted you personally or professionally in a positive way? Yeah, well, kind of like I touched on before, like my husband has been my musical partner for years, but he's always gone like he'll be home for you know, a couple months and then he's gone for like a month and a half, two months. So it was always broken up, like our ability to kind of um, really sink in and create together and, and perform together. So that was kind of the biggest plus that happened was he, he couldn't go. And I was, I mean, I was just so happy that he was here and I wasn't without him for it. You know, I'm happy that he gets to do what he loves. I would never tell him you can't tour, but, um, it was a great blessing for me to get to have him here and to, you know, we really did a lot together. We did, we developed a thing together and we're putting out a first sort of real collaborative album together. So that was a huge, huge positive. Um, yeah. And any changes in the city that you've noticed that have been positive? Well, the traffic. <laughs> it's so much easier to drive around now. It's crazy. I mean, there's still some bouts of traffic, but I mean, whew. I mean, I think Amazon employees are now indefinitely able to work from home, I believe. Until the summer, for sure. And okay. who knows and after then, that? Yeah, because just having that many thousand employees that aren't clogging up the roads, I mean, it's huge. So that that's really been nice. And now let's talk negative. Any changes that you've observed in Seattle or the region that have impacted you negatively? Not me personally, really. I mean, it's... It's, it's just hard not to be able to, you know, connect with the community and be with people. But that's not really anyone's fault, you know. Now I want to talk about the outlook for the future. First, I have to just bring the listener to where we are, that you have a neighboring rooster <laughs> who has come to your backyard <laughs> and your cat is going nuts on this. Um, so if either of us get distracted from this point forward, yeah. it's because there's going to be a rooster cat fight. Yeah, uh, it looks like it's quite entertaining here. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to talk about the future of Seattle. But first, is there anything that given these changes that you've observed? Is there anything that you would ask of the listener going forward that could make this the city that you would want it to be? Well, I mean, again, I just I I know people are busy and they have lots going on. But in terms of uh, the arts, um, we need people to engage in it, you know, otherwise we can't keep doing it. So it's it's um, I, I think we have to be um, continually um, sort of looking at that from our end. Like, how can we engage with people, you know, in the in the time of Netflix and chill, as I as I say, um, you know, to get people to to support it you know the music industry has really just it's sad but it's like completely just fallen out so you know it's it's hard not to be a little like oh is this is this ever you know is this going to get better or is this just the kind of the end of the ability to have like a 
sustainable living around being a musician. But yeah, I would just ask, you know, take a take a chance on a date night and go see a local show not and not always go to, you know, the big the big shows like Macklemore or, you know, whatever, like take a chance and go to a local venue. And that's how you can keep. Um, and, and it's been proven that these smaller venues, these medium sized venues like, you know, Tractor Tavern, Connor Byrne, um, Sunset, um, Numos, they're smaller, medium sized. That's where the bigger artists, that's where they get their start. And we have to have those. That's part of it's an essential step in the ladder of growth as artists and as musicians to have those venues. And without people coming out, you know, it's like, it's, it's going to be really hard to kind of keep that. So take a chance, come out and see a show and someone you've never heard of before. And now let's talk about what you think the future holds for Seattle. What do you see for the next 10 years or maybe even the next 10 months? Like, what do you see the future holding for Seattle? You know, in a way I was kind of like, maybe this will be that, that pop or burst of the bubble that needed to happen because like you said, the last time we talked, there was all this growth and money and people coming in and all these jobs. And and meanwhile, it's just pushing out the average Joe, you know, the the working class people are, are, are getting priced out. And, you know, it's going to eventually pop. And it kind of feels like the, the pandemic and this year kind of forced that to happen where it's like, let's be a little more realistic, you know, like there's how can things just keep on getting up and up and up and more and more expensive. And, you know, because there are these people that make, you know, all this money doing tech stuff, Amazon stuff. Um, I'm hoping that, you know, some things will kind of calm down a little bit on that end, like, you know, uh, make it so that all the artists, you know, don't want to just leave because that's definitely um, the direction that, that, you know, all most of the musicians that I know are, are talking about. Is this, you know, do we need to leave because it's, it's not really for us anymore here? It's, it's clearly like, not a priority but we're scrappy people <laughs> artists and musicians so we we make it work because i mean i don't want to i don't really want to leave i love it here the weather is just right up my alley i'm a northern girl i'm not supposed to live in you know arizona we've talked about arizona because there's supposed to be like really cool little happening arts towns that aren't are just like a fraction of what it costs to live here and so do you think that artists will continue to stay that this will be a place for artists going forward I mean, I think that there's people that are trying to make stuff happen. So there's always people that are that are fighting for it. So I hope so. Now, I want to get you to concluding thoughts. But first, I want to answer the trivia question for you and the listener. You said KEXP, which I think he's there now, right? Yeah. Uh, but he made his name for himself uh, is what we were asking. And you guessed. You said you didn't know, but you said 107 something, maybe the end. And you are spot on. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's the only other radio station I know about. <laughs> well done. He was on KNDD 107.7 The wow. End in Seattle. And he's credited with breaking such artists as Beck, the president of the United States of America, Foo Fighters. He was a big deal here in Seattle, launching so many acts nationally. Cool. And uh, he appeared on season four with you, uh, that, that season where we looked at the past, present, and future of Seattle's music scene. Right on. Thank you for playing trivia and excellent job. <laughs> and I want to ask you, do you have any concluding thoughts? Keep supporting the, the arts, you know, contribute if you can to places like KBCS, a community radio station. They, they're all about people like me who make indie um, music that you know has a home so if you can support support organizations like that go to go to a show you've never heard of take a chance 
when you know when the pandemic's over and that's about it yeah and can i push you a little bit just to give a little more concrete action steps for what we could do now during the pandemic if you'd like to keep the arts alive absolutely yeah i mean there are um i'm not sure if there's a like a a full list somewhere but you can pretty much just search you know virtual shows happening you know um and just kind of check in once in a while and you know throw a few bucks there's there's a lot of musicians that have switched over to performing virtually and they're either doing it from their home or they're going into venues where they get they film their concert um and you know it's happening like every day of the week so if you can you know check in with those and throw a few bucks in that would be you know that would that would help kind of keep thing keep people afloat <laughs> tecla thank you very much for thank joining you. me yet again i appreciate your time and perspective my pleasure and i wish you all the best with your new album tecla waterfield and jeff fielder releasing yeah. an album in january that's right and i hope uh, the listeners will check it out definitely uh, thank you again thank you that is all for today's episode of seattle growth podcast and radio show have an opinion to share reach out to me on twitter at prof shulman i enjoy hearing how listeners like you are reacting to the interviews that's at prof shulman on twitter Still to come on this season of Seattle Growth Podcast and Radio Show are interviews with business leaders, cultural leaders, small business owners, and everyday people who make Seattle what it is. Subscribe to Seattle Growth Podcast and Apple Podcast or your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss a single episode. Next week, we hear a view from Soto as I interview Erin Goodman, the Executive Director of the Soto Business Improvement Area. She discusses what makes Soto unique in its history and how it is experiencing the pandemic. The episode also features Greenwood resident Marco Antonio de Carvalho, a musician I met when setting up a listening post in the neighborhood. If you'd like me to set up a listening post in your neighborhood to bring fresh perspectives to Seattle Growth Podcast, reach out to me on Twitter, at Prof Shulman, to let me know where you'd like to see me. I hope you'll join me next week, and in the meantime, I'm Jeff Shulman, and I thank you for joining me on this journey in the return of Seattle Growth Podcast and radio show.